TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. You're listening to The Inspired Optimist with your host, Dr. Jacinta DiPrinzio, inspiring you to create a life that is healthy, bright, and full of light. Hi guys, welcome to another episode of the Inspired Optimist podcast. This is your host, Dr. Jacinta DiPrinzio, and today I'm sitting with an amazing friend of mine, Dr. Damien Christoph. Now, Damien is one of the three wellness guys. He was on the hit TV show, Downsize Me in New Zealand, and he's also an amazing chiropractor and naturopath. Now, we are going to be discussing a pretty awesome topic, and that is the topic of poo. Today, we're going to talk all about poo and what your poo is saying about you. Now, if you're not checking your number twos, then you're selling yourself short. So we're going to dive straight in, sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Thanks so much, Damo, for being here. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Welcome. Let me just say that I'm very proud <laughs> to be your first interview. That's uh, that's fantastic. I feel very honoured. So thanks, Jacinta. Um, I, you, you know me, but your listeners may not know me. And um, and I've been doing podcasting now for six years with the Wellness Guys and 100 Not Out and hundreds of other different podcasts around the world. And it's, and it's an exciting way to get um, messages across. So congratulations on getting this Thank going. Thank you very much. Very exciting. Oh, it's awesome. And you, you know that I do talking and speaking. You've had me come and do a couple of events for you now. So I've done the Power of Food which many of your listeners might have uh, been at, and mm-hmm. also Crack Your Stress Code, where you shared that tear-jerking moment that threw me right off, like it yeah. knocked us all to pieces. <laughs> oh, far out. I still think about it. I can picture that vividly. You told yeah. that story so well about your story you. in, in France, and that was uh, that was amazing. So, yeah, I do talk on, you know, food and nutrition and stress and all that sort of thing. But, you know, I started with humble beginnings. I grew up in a very, very poor family, and uh, our diet was appalling. We used to get delivered a bag of of, um, of bread, stale bread from the local bakery in a plastic garbage big, uh, wow. garbage bag. I yeah. didn't know that. Yeah. And wow. so that was delivered by the St. Vincent de Paul. We get that once a week on a Sunday night. Sometimes they forget to deliver and we wouldn't have any bread for the week. And so that was pretty rough when you were growing up in, you know, in the late 70s, early 80s and in a single parent household and things were really quite poor. And so my introduction to nutrition was pretty ordinary. You know, we'd put a, a roll or a loaf of bread into the microwave to make it fresh, mm. and then we might stuff that with some fish fingers that we, you know, had in the in the uh, the deep freezer. Gee, that sounds very Australian. Oh my gosh! Right <laughs> and there, right? a bit of tomato sauce. A bit of tomato sauce and maybe a piece <laughs> of cheddar cheese. You know, that was you know in wrapped in plastic. And so that was kind of what we did. It was that's that's just what how I grew up with nutrition. And so. You know, it's quite a journey to arrive now at a place where now I speak on food and, and I enjoy eating, you know, beautiful food from everywhere around the world and, and and understanding the importance of food. So there's that, you know, part of what I do. And then, of course, there's the chiropractic part, you know, which I'm very, very passionate about. I speak on chiropractic and the nervous system all around Australia and the world and, and try to encourage people to understand what chiropractic truly is as opposed to what the media represents us as. And, uh, and it is an incredible um, healing profession that assists people to get well rather than to treat disease. Yeah, so, um, beautiful. Yeah, and I really love it. Mm. Yeah. So what was it that actually, obviously, because like you said, you grew up um, quite poor and you were having those diets with the stale bread, etc. Mm. What was it that actually got you interested in learning about health and healthy eating? Because I know that you're also a naturopath. Mm. What was that journey? Were you, did you start off that way or uh, how did that come about? 
Well, it started when I was studying to be an accountant. And uh, when I started to be an right. accountant, I, uh, I, you know, it's kind of, you know, transitions well, doesn't it? So You've I went, had many lives. <laughs> <laughs> studying to be an accountant, that was really boring. And you know, I found myself sleeping a lot when I was studying it. And, uh, and so I entertained myself by going down to the beach. And I'd spend time at the beach and experiment with herbs. And, uh, <laughs> you know, as many people do. And so I experimented with these herbs and they expanded my consciousness. And when you expand your consciousness through uh, herbal medicine, you start to do some crazy, kooky, wacky stuff. And one of those things was to, you know, eat even more poorly than what I, mm. uh, than what I you know, used to do. And so I'd have a bag of snakes or a bag of strawberries and cream. And so, you know, my diet, my nutrition intake was pretty poor. That was what I'd do that a day. And I'd have strawberry wow. milkshakes and strawberry donuts and pies. I'm surprised and... you still have your teeth. <laughs> well, these aren't mine. <laughs> no, they are. And uh, so I would, um, yeah, I, I, you know, I just got really tired and I got achy mm. through my joints. And, um, and my mum took me to a naturopath and she said, you got to go and do this stuff. And so I did it and, and I got better really fast. And so that was, that was a really big learning experience for me. And I decided I'd go to study to be a naturopath, given I was no good at this accounting gig. It mm-hmm. took me two and a half years to pass first year accounting, so oh my gosh. I should have um, should have learned. I should yes. have learned early, and and fired fast, but I didn't. So I went on to study to be a naturopath, loved it, and uh, and found myself looking after lots of sick people mm-hmm. and lots of well people. And the well people tended to see a chiropractor, and I didn't understand it. Mm-hmm. So I made an appointment to go see this chiropractor to find out what it was all about, and and then I learned that it was the nervous system that governs every single function within the body. Mm-hmm. You know, regardless of whether or not you've got two ovaries or a uterus or you've got. Um, a heart that beats only 50% of the time, regardless of any of that sort of stuff, it's the nervous system that actually controls all of that. And uh, and so for me, um, I could either go and study medicine and do drugs and surgery to become a neurologist and cut people open, which Mm. I didn't want to do. I wanted to be at the top of the cliff rather than at the bottom of the cliff or go study to be a chiropractor. And so I chose to study to be a chiropractor and not knowing that it was contentious. Like I, I had no idea yes. that, uh, <laughs> that, that the media would see us as being contentious and that there'd be people out there that would, you know, try to spread, you know, rumours and false uh, claims about chiropractors making us look like we're crazy. Uh, when we fact, are a little bit crazy, well, but in a good way. I good good, good type of crazy. <laughs> we are a good crazy. But I think the people um, misunderstand what chiropractic actually is. And so yes, um, definitely. I'm out there trying to... You know, help people understand that chiropractors are very highly skilled professionals. We study for five years, and and we and we do wonderful things with adults and children and the elderly and animals. And so we do really great things. And it's not medicine, and it's not um, a, a a disease treatment model. It's actually mm. about keeping bodies healthy. And so that's kind of how I got here. That's that's why I'm doing what I do. Yeah, fantastic. And now I know there's one other thing that you love even more than chiropractic, mm-hmm. and that is poo. No, now, I've I never, <laughs> I've never known anyone to talk so yeah. much shit in their life. Uh, meaning talk yes. about so much shit in I their do. life. I do. So what is the fascination that you have with poo? <laughs> well, it's funny because I don't. Where did that come about? Well, I love chiropractic way more than I do poo. But <laughs> Not many people actually talk about poo at the dinner table and or yes. at the breakfast table. And it's one of those things that's a really key indicator of our health. Uh, and so, you know, many people might say they're tired or they might say they're stressed or they might say they're anxious or they might say they've got bad skin or they might say they're carrying weight. But one of the key indicators to understand whether or not your body's going wrong in the first place in the early days and the early phases of your decline in health is your gastrointestinal function. Mm. And so if your poos are bad, 
um, in other words, they're like at the number one end or the number seven end, if they're not good, then you've got to look at that and try and work out how to fix it. Otherwise, your body will give you more symptoms to try and work out or to let you know that there's something failing. Mm. But your gastrointestinal function is a really early clue as to what's actually happening inside your body because most of us ignore it. We look for pain. We look for dysfunction, uh, the inability to perform activities of daily living. And and so as a result of that, um, we often wait until it's too late. Mm. Um, But your stool function or your bowel function is a really good indicator of stress, um, absorption, um, gastrointestinal health, microbiome quality, um, immunity. There's, There's so many wonderful clues that you get from understanding your poo yes yeah which which i like to talk about you're right (laughs) definitely Mm. so um i know that um whenever i ask my clients this question you know what's your bowel movements like what's your digestion like something that i get often back is oh it's normal and then Mm. when i dive deep into okay well what does that mean what's your deep into the (laughs) (laughs) dive deep into this (laughs) 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 when we get into it um we they they divulge that okay well maybe normal for them is actually going to the bathroom every second day or a couple of times a week or loose stools etc um yeah and and i heard you say talking about um one to seven so Mm. that that um system when looking at the quality of your bowels um (laughs) can you take me through what actually normal digestion is and what that could should look like because i think that people are a little bit confused as to what that should be yeah sure that's a great question it's good to acknowledge that too because what's one person's normal is not another person's normal but there's definitely a stool that's expected Mm. and the stool that's expected is a stool that passes un Sorry, it passes digested food. So I was thinking about sesame seeds for a second. Because <laughs> they don't get digested. Hashtag sesame seeds challenge. That's right. I'll talk about that in a second. But, um, you know, you should have a full movement um, that empties your whole bowel uh, in one go. And what we often find with some people is they have multicolored poo. And so we'll talk, you know, a little bit about the delayed transit time. But essentially what should happen is the meal that you ate well, the meals that you ate in the 12 to 24-hour period preceding your bowel movement are the ones that should be coming out now. Mm. And so you, you can't, you're looking for the a transit time of around 12 to 24 hours. It should be one solid log. Um, if you break that log into a couple of chunks, then that's fine. And the length of that, listen to this, this will blow your mind. The length of that log should be the length of the, the amount of space between your wrist and your elbow, which is wow. long, right? <laughs> It's long. <laughs> How do you even flush that? Yeah. <laughs> well, fortunately, we have S beds, right? <laughs> but look, that's about as much bowel movement as what should come out in a day. Right. So that might happen for some people once a day. Other people might take two or three bowel movements to get that out in a day. But that's about how much bowel movement should come out in a day, around about the length of your of your forearm, mm. not the length of your arm, and not the width of your <laughs> forearm either. The width of your forearm is hard to get out, I'm sure. But um, it's, so it should be that. Now, I call that a number four. Mm-hmm. So number four is a nice, good shape log. Um, it'll be easy to move. It won't require lots of cleanup. Um, it shouldn't need to be chopped. It may break, but it shouldn't break up, if that makes sense. And it shouldn't have any you know, undigested food material in there unless it's things like nuts and seeds. Mm. So nuts and seeds and quinoa, for example, sesame seeds and corn, they won't get digested very mm. easily. Um, and, 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 you know, in that 12 to 24-hour period, you know, they will, will come out undigested in, in part, mm-hmm. if you know what I mean. 
Yes. Mm. So yeah, that's your number four. That's that's kind of what you're everyone's aiming to achieve a number four. That's what they should be. And then the wetter end of that is, you know, closer to number seven. And then the drier end of that is closer to number one, which is be like a rabbit poo, mm. um, little pallets. Mm. Okay. Which uh, is, of course, you know, a problem. So you, you don't want to be hanging on to things for too long. That indicates, um, you know, a bit of retention uh, and then dehydrated stools. And of course, that could be a result of dehydration yourself. Mm. Um, but it might also be a result of, you know, bowel blockages or maybe some um, allergies and sensitivity like lactose, for example. Mm. Lactose often represent or is, you know, characterized by uh, long term constipation. Mm, okay. So there could be an issue, you know. But, it, you know, for other people, lactose might cause. You know, very runny, mucusy stool, uh, which is kind of the gravy train number seven end, and, uh, and so that's uh, something that people should be aware of. But definitely, the most dangerous end of the poo spectrum is the upper numbers. So if you go to a five, a six, and a seven, mm. if you're hanging around at the gravy train end for too long, that's a really big issue, and that should be looked at by your uh, your health practitioner, um, whether it's you, whether it's the GP down the road, whether it's the gastroenterologist. Definitely, if you've got uh, a number seven hanging around for too long, that's got to be checked out. That's no good. Yeah. No good. Um, I often find with a lot of my clients, especially females, uh, when they're very stressed, they tend to hold on to things, including their bowels. Yeah, yeah. totally. Constipation. Yeah. So yeah. what is, um, I suppose, the processes behind that um, and how does actually stress affect our digestive tract? That's a great Great question. Stress has a, an immediate effect on the gastrointestinal tract. And you can use the, you know, very simple example of a fright. You know, quite often we hear about when people get a fright, they let go of everything. Mm. And uh, and that's a sympathetic dominant response or a sympathetic response or fight or flight. And in that scenario, people, your body recognizes that it doesn't need to have food in it. You know, it's in fact going to try and get rid of any excess weight mm. that's slowing it down because the fight or flight response is to get you out of danger. And, uh, and so, you know, many people will dump that very, very quickly. Now, if food hasn't been digested enough and food's higher up the gastrointestinal tract and you're in stress, um, you will be clenching a whole lot of muscles inside mm. your peritoneum and inside your gastrointestinal tract. And as a result, foods and digestive material won't move through as effectively and as efficiently. And, uh, and, and so you, you'll hang on to things for a little bit longer. Now, some people... Um, in the acute phases of stress will have very um, persistent and consistent regular bowel movements. So it could be that they move their bowels four, five, six, seven or eight times a day. Mm. But over time, as people start to become fatigued and stress becomes part of their normal daily life, um, things start to dry out a little bit and they become a little bit retentive, only retentive. Things just stay in a little bit. And, <laughs> like uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? And, uh, and things stay in there for too long and that becomes a big problem. So then there's issues with hydration, absorption, yeah. and uh, so there can be bloating issues. Many women I know come into my practice and they're experiencing bloating. Um, see, I find it really fascinating that bloating seems to affect women more than it does men. It's highly likely that men probably get it, but they just don't really notice mm. it. Uh, whereas women probably tend to notice it a lot more. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And um, definitely, obviously, what you're putting in your mouth actually has to come out. So that's going to affect um, how your stools look and how your digestion works. What would be your best tips um, for having a healthy diet and making sure that 
um, our bowel movements and our general health is up to standard because I know that there's a lot of um, ideas out there. There's a lot of conflicting information. There's different diets. There's this, that, and the other. And it seems like that information changes almost every day. We see something different on the television. So what do you recommend and, and uh, what do you think is the best thing in terms of what we're eating? This episode of the Inspired Optimist podcast will continue very soon. If you're enjoying this episode and think that one of your loved ones would benefit from this information, make sure you share it with them and, of course, give me a five-star rating on iTunes. It's now time for the rest of the show, so listen up while we discuss the best foods you can eat for healthy digestion and food formation. So there's a few things. Obviously, there's a whole lot of different trends at the moment. So we see we're coming out of a trend called paleo. Um, and that paleo trend's just about to finish. Um, you'll see, so, you know, the people that are hardcore, that'll continue to be. And it's not a bad way to eat. It's just that it can ignore some certain macronutrients that people, or not macronutrients, micronutrients that people, mm. you know, really do need to get in there, into their body. It also ignores a couple of little food groups that assist bacteria um, to grow. So the resistant starches, the things that come from rice and, um, and potatoes and those sorts of things, um, green bananas. So for the really hardcore paleo people that won't eat nuts, Mm. Um, and the hardcore paleo people that won't eat tubers, you know, such as potatoes, um, or they won't go anywhere near dairy or rice, um, they're often missing out on essential um, food types and nutrients that assist in bacterial growth. And mm. now with a greater understanding of the microbiome and the requirement to maintain the health of so many bacteria in your body, it's really important to include those in your diet. So as we move out of paleo and move towards vegan, because that's the other extreme mm. end of healthy food, um, we're going to find that people are going to be a little bit protein deficient. And so we'll find that many people who need more protein rather than less protein, and, and I'll, you know, I'll throw something into the mix that will get people talking, um, the O-type blood person, for example, is going to require more protein than plant-based proteins. So animal-based proteins like fish and chicken and cows and pigs and all of those sorts of things. The, the carnivore, the omnivore is going to require more of that than the A-type blood person who could be vegan mm. very easily. So I, I know that's going to prick a few ears up and that's probably another conversation mm. for another time, but um, th- not everybody's cut the same. So as we move towards the vegan end of the spectrum, there were people that become deficient in protein and that's a concern for me. Because whilst it's nice to think that we could live on plants alone, many people thrive better on an omnivorous diet rather than actually a uh, a plant-based vegetarian or vegan diet. Mm, Okay. Mm, mm. And I heard you uh, just touched on their dairy and that some people might demonize dairy. Now, I um, it's definitely my experience that any time I go off dairy or I encourage my clients to go off dairy that they feel better and they do better. Yeah. Um, And I was always under the impression that it was because obviously that's a (laughs) substance that helps grow a baby calf into a cow it's not yeah. really designed for human consumption true and um also the enzymes that um help would help us break that down like uh, yeah, yeah. I, I killed essentially through the heating process now what's your opinion on dairy and should we be eating it do we need it um do we need uh, the calcium that's in dairy what's your take on that there's so many questions in that it's just, it's just <laughs> bang, awesome. bang, bang. <laughs> 
And I'm definitely not a pro-dairy person, but I'm definitely not an anti-dairy person. Mm. What I do like to see is delivery mechanisms for the benefits of food to the body. So I much prefer that people get their calcium from plant-based sources. I don't think that people need to get their calcium from dairy. I don't think that's essential. But there are some people out there that don't eat enough plants, and so then you do need to get more calcium. Mm. And so for people that are plant deficient in their diet, they probably do need to include some kind of high calcium food. And for many people, that'll be dairy. Um, because they're not going to eat anything else. But there's a there's definitely a macronutrient and a micronutrient issue if you're not eating enough plant-based product, and that can be covered off by having some dairy, mm. which is great. Now, the caveat to that is that the quality of the dairy is important. So if you're going to go and get the cheapest dairy you can possibly find, then you're going to have the cheapest effect that you could possibly imagine. So you're better off going to get the best quality dairy that you can possibly find so you get the best quality effect that you could ever imagine. Mm. So what does that so, mean, Good, best quality dairy? So I'll be going for a non-homogenized, unpasteurized, organic, raw milk. That's mm-hmm. the best thing. Now, try to get that in Australia is very, very difficult. You know, in Victoria, it got banned recently, you know, which is ridiculous. I mean, our government in Victoria is mm. just out of control with the health department. They're just trying to ban everything. But what we, what we do understand is that when you have raw, whole, unhomogenized cow's milk, there's a lot of benefit to the human body. And you don't have to drink it by the gallon. You don't need to drink it by the litre. You don't have to drink it by the five Although milk. it does taste that good, yeah, it does, that raw it? milk. <laughs> and you can. You can just put it away. It's an amazing, amazing flavour sensation. It's really beautiful. But there's so much nourishment in it. And there's, you know, bacteria that's growing in there. There's enzymes. There's everything in there. When you pasteurise things, you knock off a lot of that stuff. Mm. And, and so much of that benefit is gone. So you'll find that a lot of your cheeses don't use pasteurised milk because if they use pasteurised milk, then it won't work. The other thing that you're not going to have in um, in much of your cheese is homogenization because mm. the fat component is an important part of the cheese. So um, you get bacteria and you get an unpasteurized and unprocessed milk, which is really good. So if you get some organic cheese, that's a fabulous way to get good, you know, good bacteria, good protein. Um, you know, for one of a, you know better understanding of nutrients, probably more magnesium and calcium, you know, vitamin D also coming through your dairy. So there's some there's some things that you can get from dairy. Um, I love to eat yogurt. Um, the reason why I like yogurt is because it delivers bacteria to my gastrointestinal mm. system. So um, I eat fermented foods. I have kimchi, I have sauerkraut. Now, I don't mind kombucha, but I find it a little bit too sweet for me um, and, I, you know, I don't really need it. Uh, so I have other ways to deliver um, the bacteria into my body. But I also understand that there's certain types of bacteria that have an effect on the body. So, for example, a strain like LGG, um, which is a lactobacillus strain, is really good for the immune system and eczema and asthma and dermatitis and hay fever. Um, And so having that in your food or having that as a supplement is really, really good. So there's different strains of bacteria that you can find in dairy and you can find in tablet form that, you know, have an unbelievably helpful effect on the body. Beautiful. And just going back, so you mentioned that um, you would prefer for people to get their calcium through plant-based foods. Yeah. What are some of those foods that, say, for example, you are vegan or you don't have dairy, mm-hmm. um, what should we be having more of to get those nutrients? Uh, such a great, great question again. So all of your green leafy vegetables are rich in calcium. Uh, so to put this into context, and not that broccoli has the same amount of calcium in it as milk, but... Broccoli per 100 grams has the same amount of usable calcium that 100 mils of milk has. 
So you got to you got to focus on the usable word there. So if you're getting a big load of calcium into your body, your body can only deal with so much at one particular point in time. Mm. So what's usable from the glass of milk is about equivalent to the same weight in broccoli, which is fascinating. Wow. Mm. And so really nice little um, tip to take away there. You can actually get lots of your calcium from green leafy vegetables. You can get it from sprouts and basically anything with a structure that has a root system is going to pull calcium from the ground. So this is, I suppose, where um, buying organic food is probably better mm. than buying, you know, the same old farm-based produce that's um, been pumping out carrots mm. and corn for, you know, hundreds of years. It's better to try and get organic where, you know, plant matter's turned back into the soil and, and, mm. and is rotting and then re-nourishing the plants. Yeah. Mm. Um, speaking about organic, yeah, um, that reminds me of just while well, we have the last five minutes here, um, it reminds me of uh, a conversation I had with my partner when I started to go organic mm-hmm. uh, a few years ago. Yep. And uh, we had a massive debate. I remember having it in Myers <laughs> because I was trying to tell him that, you know, he needs to come on board and do this organic movement with me if yeah. we're going to do it together. It's going to be much easier. Yeah. And um, he went home because he researches everything. And he went home and looked everything up and um, basically had did some research on the fact that there was no nutritional difference between organic food and non-organic food. So I know I've heard that a few times and I don't necessarily believe it, mm-hmm. but I've heard it a few times since then. Um, and so what would you say about what are the actually some of the benefits? I know that's a, this could be a whole nother podcast, but just quickly, what are some of the benefits of actually going organic versus buying from just say your local supermarket? That's again, an amazing question. <laughs> I know, I'm, I'm full Look of this Great questions. <laughs> quite the interviewer. Um, what's um, what's fascinating about that? And you know, Elle's right. There's not a huge difference nutritionally. You know, from a macronutrient perspective, there's not a big difference. Um, from a micronutrient perspective, there is a difference. And so we do find that there is greater levels of vitamins in the organic produce compared to the non-organic produce. Um, and that's been shown dozens and dozens of times in studies throughout America from as early as 1905 up into current day. So 110 years ago, they recognized that organic farmed produce had more nutrients in it than non-organic farmed produce. Wow, there you go. So, we, you know, sorry, Al. But, uh, <laughs> yes, I knew I was right. <laughs> but as we continue to consume more and more organic pro- produce and we're using the same organic farms over and over and over again, that nutrient level will decline. Mm. And, uh, and so we'll have the same problems as what we do have with our other produce. It'll probably take a bit longer to get there because we're going to turn back into the soil um, the old plant matter so that it decays and rots and some of the nutrients that were brought up through the plant will go back into the ground and mm. back into the soil, which is great. Um, but uh, we will still probably arrive there. And particularly in Australia, we don't flood the plains. Like we don't have flooding off the mountains um, particularly here in Western Australia, right? You guys don't get any kind of flooding that's going to, mm. you know, benefit the you get sunburn. Um, you get sunburn, right? <laughs> that's right. So, I mean, you get some rain that makes crops grow, but you're not getting anything run off the mountains, which is bringing the minerals off mm. the stones and the rocks back into the soil down below where you're farming it all out. So, you know, it'll, it will become depleted over time. Probably the one benefit with uh, the organic stuff is it doesn't contain the um, non-organic pesticides. So, you know, we can talk for hours about different pesticides and herbicides that are used, but glyphosate's one of those that um, that Cindy Amira talks about a lot. And um, and that's what we find in Roundup. And a lot of the, mm. the produce these days is sprayed, sprayed with Roundup. 
and uh, and that's a that's a big concern because mm-hmm. that will kill off our bacteria and of course that affects our immune system so it is of course a really good idea to wash your non-organic food um you should still wash your organic food as well but th- for this reason that when they're using um, pesticides and herbicides in organic environments, they're using heavy metals to do it. And so they're using copper to kill off bugs and, uh, and over time that renders the land um, infertile. And so organic farming has consequences. Similarly, so does non-organic farming. It also has consequences. So, you know, when you've got to feed massive population and population at the moment of the world, the planet is growing at an exponential rate. As we're trying to punch out and pump out more food for everybody's hungry mouths and we waste so much more of that, mm. um, there's some really big issues there. So my thing is is to try and eat as fresh as you possibly can. Most of us will be able to get harvest nutrients from all of the food that we get. If you can eat as fresh as you possibly can, and eat as close to nature as you possibly can, you'll have an exceptional life. And I think about all the people in Ikaria in Greece, or all the people in Sardinia in Italy. And I think about the Japanese people in Okinawa. They're living a long time, but their diet isn't anything magical. It's something pretty simple. So they might have one or two vegetables at a time, maybe a little bit of fruit here and there, um, some beans from time to time, a little bit of protein from time to time, but it's nothing really that magical. There's nothing really that exciting about it. Um, we probably try harder here in Australia than yeah. what they do over there, and they're living longer. So go figure that one. But um, they're not necessarily eating inorganic, and they're not necessarily eating organic. They're just kind of eating food and but living life, mm, which is kind of the inspired optimist way. Right? <laughs> That's it. And um, there is just so much information that you've given through this last half hour, and I would love to divulge even further into that in future podcasts to come. I just think there's so much information. Even um, I know that you've travelled to Greece and you've seen some amazing things there and learned some awesome things too. Um, but we'll have to wrap it up there. Yeah. I'm so thankful that you are my um, first guest. I'm on your this. number one. Yeah, you're number one. You always be <laughs> my number one. My thanks. first. Oh, thanks. <laughs> and um, yeah, thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much. Beautiful. All right, guys. Thanks so much for tuning in uh, for the very first interview on the Inspired Optimist podcast. I look forward to bringing even more inspirational people, not more inspirational, some (laughs) more inspirational people um, to teach you all about health and wellness and how to live an amazing inspired life. Bye for now. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.